Welcome back to another episode of the Converge Podcast, where we help you have a Christian worldview in a post-Christian culture. My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And we are to show... My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And we're here to help you... God, I can't do it. For some reason, I'm getting tongue-tied on... Welcome back once again to the Converge Podcast, where we help you have a Christian worldview in a post-Christian culture. My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And this will be an episode. Yes, it will. Welcome back to the Converge Podcast. Today, we're going to field a question that we've gotten a few times over the weeks, especially since we've talked about marriage in a few episodes. Uh, we've gotten a lot of questions about how we deal with the issue of singleness and even some questions about the way in which uh, we have briefly, because it's only been like a sentence or two here or there, how we have briefly uh just kind of talked about the issue of singleness. And so whenever we talk about marriage and family issues or issues uh, pertaining to the next generation, Mm -hmm. I think the real crux of the issue is how do the issues of of family, of marriage, even of um, gender, how do those issues kind of not just impact singleness, but help singles – in a sense, feel good about their place in life, feel as though they are not lacking where their faith in Christ is concerned, and find uh, their place in the church? Yeah, so I think we do get that question uh, relatively frequently, and I thought it would be good to just step back. We'll answer that question, but step back and talk a little bit just about a theology of singleness, Mm -hmm. uh, because Scripture does have some things to say about singleness. Uh, Paul addresses the topic very directly in 1 Corinthians 7, so Thought that'd be a helpful topic for an episode just to talk through that. Yeah, I think in college, First Corinthians seven was uh, probably its peak uh, popularity <laughs> with with college kids trying to figure out, uh, you know, do I have what's what's referred to as the gift of yeah. singleness? And and I think that's that's something that is big inside of dealing with, you know, is there a theology that can be formed of singleness? And I think understanding having a theology of anything, the way a lot of people go wrong is they form a philosophy around their feelings. They form a philosophy around their experiences. They form a philosophy around, you know, how they feel emotionally, what they've gone through, uh, whether, you know, whether it be physically, whether it be romantically, how kind of their life has conditioned them to feel about their place in life at a particular point in time with the particular issue of singleness. And I think that is where people get something wrong, because there is a difference between a philosophy of something and a theology of something. And what many people call a theology of something has less to do with God, mm-hmm. more to do with their view on it. And so for a lot of people, I think it would be good if you just admit that you have a philosophy of singleness that needs to become a theology of singleness. But the only way that that gap is going to be bridged is if you let the Bible um, inform your view of singleness, inform your view of where you are right now. And oftentimes, 1 Corinthians 7 is applied in a misunderstood place. What I mean is people look at 1 Corinthians 7 and just read through what Paul says and try to kind of uh, form a view that takes their philosophy of how they feel and lays it on top of what Paul says about uh, marriage, about singleness, about anxiety, about burning with passion. And so a lot of times the exegesis goes wrong 
because it's more about finding therapy mm-hmm. um, to feel good about where you are in life more than it is about receiving the word of God through specifically what Paul was addressing at that particular place. Because the real issue with 1 Corinthians 7 is that Paul was dealing with a specific issue. He wasn't so much painting with a very broad brush as he was dealing with a particular issue with a particular point in time. Yeah, I'd say the other thing that, like, yes, that, and then what comes in so crucially with that is you've got to approach 1 Corinthians 7 with all the other teachings of scripture mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. marriage from Genesis, you know, two and three, all the way. So you, you have to like have that as your foundation to get to the point where Paul is giving these commands to really properly understand. Yeah, them. There is a way to read first Corinthians seven and it's the wrong way that actually contradicts with right. what Paul says <laughs> elsewhere, right. especially in place like Ephesians five. Uh, but even with what Jesus says in Matthew mm-hmm. 19, um, all the way back to the original covenant of marriage found in the book of Genesis, there is a way to read first Corinthians seven to where you unnecessarily find a contradiction in what Paul says here as to what Paul says somewhere else. And it's important to understand that anytime you find a contradiction or a seeming contradiction in the Bible, it isn't a contradiction. You are reading something into the text or placing meaning onto the text that's not actually there. So let's go ahead and start um, by reading kind of the portion of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says that it's better to stay single. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the huge caveat um, to this suggestion that it's better to remain single is there in verse 9, if they cannot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's a, that's a huge if statement that Paul is placing on that. Paul says, uh, if you can be content in your singleness and if you don't desire marriage, um, there's much good you can do as a single. But how we, you know, with with the whole breadth of scriptural teaching on marriage and then add on to that our 13 years plus of mm-hmm. pastoral experience dealing with people, talking through these issues, that is a huge if. Because when you sit down and talk to someone, almost everyone who is single does not qualify with this if because they do absolutely desire and i've met many people that talk about the gift of singleness and contentment and singleness while they're trying to date while (laughs) they're trying to find a mate (laughs) right and it's like well you've already disqualified yourself (laughs) because you're showing uh, by just even your actions and your posture that you're taking in life that you don't desire it and so uh, in this section of first corinthians 7 it's important to understand the context of what was going on yeah. in Corinth and really in world religion at that time. World religion was something that was mostly focused on asceticism, something that was focused on denying your self-pleasure, denying your self-feeling. And so 
In this particular passage, Paul is more dealing uh, with people who are saying that you have to be celibate, that there is a religious superiority if you can deny yourself pleasure, if you can deny yourself the things that you want, you will be spiritually superior to others. Therefore, celibacy is something that needs to be mandated to a lot of people. And so Paul is more dealing with that than he is with elevating singleness. He's not saying that there's anything negative about marriage. We know that because of things that he said elsewhere. And also um, in the very first four words when he says, now as a concession, the term for concession can be kind of misleading because he's not conceding a point here. The original language, that Greek word there literally means that he is aware of of something. So what Paul is saying is, I am aware that marriage is not spiritually superior to celibacy, but I'm also aware that celibacy is not superior to marriage in any way. And that is why he is he's so forceful on making the statement that marriage is fine. Marriage is a good thing. You don't need to deny yourself marriage. And so what Paul is focused on more is what do you do when you have those burning desires? The answer is never Mm self-denial on an issue that is not immoral. And so in other places, when Paul deals with issues of morality, if something's clearly immoral, if it's clearly against God's word, Paul says, deny yourself. Don't do that. You need to obey God. But in this instance, Paul's actually doing the opposite. He's saying, if you desire marriage, don't avoid it. If you desire marriage, it's a fine thing. There's nothing superior about Paul being single and being celibate than being married. Yeah. I think what we would come out of this with, you know, all the, what we just said, what we come out of this text is there, there is no gift of singleness. Right. That, that's a kind of a foolish thing to talk about. Actually, I wouldn't even, he, Paul doesn't directly say there's even a gift of celibacy. I think you can mm-hmm. read that into yeah. the text a little bit and be in an okay place. Like there, there clearly is a gift Paul is trying to say of not desiring marriage, but it is precisely a gift because it is not the norm. Yeah. Hebrews tells us, uh, excuse me, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Yeah. And so anything that God gives you is a gift. Any, yeah. any place that you find yourself in at any period of time, God has given you that as his good gift to you. It all exists to conform you to the image of Christ. But the gift of singleness um, is the way that it has been spoken of in contemporary culture. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is always talked of as the gift that you don't want. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like, do I, the question isn't, yeah. you know, um, what do I do with the gift of singleness? The question has always been, do I have the gift yeah. of singleness? <laughs> and it's a very easy question to answer. Number one, can you find that in scripture? No. Number two, do you burn? Do you desire, and you don't even have to make that about physical burning. You can just say, do you desire a romantic relationship? Do you desire to know someone of the opposite sex at an intimate level that goes beyond the bounds of friendship? Uh, Because there's intimacy, physical intimacy is not the only intimacy that takes place inside of a marriage. I have a relationship with my wife that I do not have with any Mm. other woman. You know, I don't share it with anyone else of any gender in the world. But when you're dealing with the issue of marriage, we got to be clear. We're only dealing with people of the opposite sex here. 
And so the intimacy that I have with my wife emotionally, the intimacy that I have with my wife on a personal level, on an information level, yeah. just everything that you can think of under the sun. It goes beyond the bounds of plutonic friendship that I've ever experienced with anyone in this world. And that is a good thing to desire. And that's why the Bible spends the majority of time talking about marriage in the positive sense, saying this is a beautiful thing. This is something that you should seek. And so without a doubt, no matter what the age, I have not yet and maybe somebody listening to this will come and blow my mind. I have yet to meet the person that did not have a desire for that type of relationship in their life. Yeah. I mean, I like I can concede, especially because of Paul's witness here, that, that it exists. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is so rare that even in our pastoral ministry to, at this point, thousands of people, if yeah. you take the time, uh, we have not yet met them. So this topic requires a great deal of self-honesty yeah. and self-reflection. Like what I do see happening, and I, I think this is because of bad teaching. This is not really fair to singles, but they get in the place where, you know, if they're honest with themselves, yes, of course they desire marriage. But as time goes on, um, because marriage is not happening because they continue to be signal, they find themselves almost convincing themselves, oh, I'm, I must have this gift and there's something wrong with me for, for not like, right. properly using this gift. And I just want to say to them that that's not fair to you at all. Yeah. Like, and what Paul, what Paul, I mean, Paul is specifically saying, if you do not have, you know what, if you want to call this the gift yeah. of celibacy, if you do not want to be celibate the rest of your life, Paul's telling you. It's okay. Yeah. Don't pretend that you don't desire something that right. you actually desire. You you can pursue it. You can have goals in your life. You can have a vision for it. And it's a good thing. Yeah. And uh, avoiding that desire or pretending you don't have it is not going to solve the, <clears throat> the hurt of that situation. And that that is where kind of a therapeutic church culture really does uh, cause problems for people because it convinces them, well, the answer, and you, you started this talking about asceticism, the answer to an unfulfilled desire is just to pretend like that desire doesn't exist. That's not an answer at all. No. That actually is going to lead to a lot of pain. Well, it's, it's going to lead to a lot of emotional pain. It's going yeah. to lead to the biggest issue. And this, this is what I think Paul got to. Anytime you make a law where God has not made a law, you will even accidentally create a false religion mm -hmm. uh, because you'll be enforcing a legalism. Yeah. You will believe that you are spiritually superior to others because of an unnecessary denial. And your desire for relationship, your desire for acceptance by other people is going to come out in the most kind of dangerous place in your life. And so if you're trying to fight the urge to desire a relationship with someone else, and so you create a spiritual level of asceticism. It's going to become that which you measure spiritual maturity with. And so other people are seeking to get married. Maybe even friends of yours are seeking to find a spouse. And so you will begin to resent them. And then you will begin to make accusations towards them and say, well, if you were as spiritual as I am, you wouldn't desire that type of relationship in your life. When in all actuality, you're actually very spiritually immature. And you're causing yourself emotional and mental problems that is creating a spiritual wound in your life. And ultimately, it's going to make you into some type of relational Judaizer where you're saying that everybody has to be like you or they're not spiritual enough for you. And so let's talk about two categories of singles. And the first category would be singles like Paul. Paul says, as I am. And Paul 
basically is saying he didn't desire marriage. He had the the gift of uh, celibacy. And the biblical teaching there is pretty straightforward. Um, There is an advantage that Paul points out to singleness. You have more time on your hands. Uh, You can commit to things that married people can't necessarily commit to. You can advance the kingdom and build the church without the restraints of marriage, without the restraints that family necessarily puts on your life. Yep. And so Paul does kind of walk through kind of these advantages of singleness there in 1 Corinthians 7. So I'm going to read a little bit more of that because that, that is the scriptural testimony there. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I think I think it's important first to point out Paul is not using the same categories for worldly um that you might be. So oftentimes when people think about the, the term worldly, they're thinking about something that's sinful. Mm-hmm. I know that when I was, yeah. when I was growing up, people would say, Oh, that's <laughs> spiritual. That means that's something you do for the Lord. And then you would look at something else. And say, Oh no, 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 that's worldly. You need to avoid that. That's not the way that Paul is stating it. Again, if that's what Paul meant, he would be contradicting first himself. And then secondly, <laughs> um, the word of God, yeah. because in Ephesians five, Paul, writes about marriage as something that is sanctifying, something that brings godliness into your life. When Paul uses the term worldly in this passage, what Paul is doing is he's talking about everyday life. He's talking about practical realities that you do need to think about when you think about marriage. Um, And there are a host of them. Um, I mean, there's probably we could give an exhaustive list of the considerations, Um, even when you are betrothed, when you are seeking to enter into marriage, there are family considerations, there are financial considerations, there are relational considerations. Uh, There are so many considerations that that it does take time. It does take commitment. It does pull you away from other things that you could be doing with your time, but you are not doing it with your time because you're focused on building a marriage that hasn't even happened yet. Much less when you get into marriage, uh, you know, a healthy marriage is something where it limits you. Any commitment that you make in your life, and I've said this this many times, when you say yes to committing to anything, mm-hmm. you are necessarily saying no to other commitments. And so when you say yes to a commitment to get married, you are saying no to everything that you could do. In the opposition of that marriage. And so you're going to have to spend time planning. You're going to have to spend time coordinating. You're going to have to spend time getting to know one another on a level that bars you from getting to know other things. And so even at the point where the Apostle Paul uses his own life, what does Paul mean when he talks about he wants you to be free from, you know, quote unquote, the anxieties of marriage? He's not using the term anxiety in the same way where he says, be anxious about nothing. There's different types of anxiety through scriptures. In the scripture, there are good anxieties that you can have. And the anxieties that come with marriage 
are good anxieties. Paul spent all of his life after conversion to Christ. Um, And there is a thread of history that some people think Paul may have been married in his pre-conversion life. But post-conversion, the Apostle Paul spent his entire life traveling the world, risking his life over and over again, being beaten, being stoned, being shipwrecked, you know, being bitten by snakes and, you know, on and on and on, ultimately in prison in Rome. Paul had the freedom to do a lot of those things because he was single. If Paul had had a wife and kids at home, all of the risks that he took for the gospel would have been seen through a different light. Mm -hmm. Um, I would look at any man who's going to get married, and if he tells me, well, I'm going to get married, then I'm going to leave my family physically at home, and I'm going to go and I'm going to travel the world doing extremely risky things for the sake of the gospel, and I'm never coming home again. I would look at that guy and say, wait, are you married yet? Because if you're not married yet, you need to call this off. And if you are married, it would be a sin against your wife and against your children to do those things. There are married missionaries, and they take their families with them. Or there are married missionaries who go on short-term trips and come home. But to do what the Apostle Paul did for the sake of the gospel— did require him to live a life of celibacy because he could not, in good conscience, have a family that depended on him while also taking the risks and committing to the travel that he committed to as a single man. He needed to be single to do that. Yeah, Paul's giving a very straightforward teaching here. Uh, If you're single, you have more time and availability. But what he's not doing is he's not saying, so because of that, you should deny your desire to be married and be signal because Mm -hmm. you've got to take that big if that he gave earlier on in the passage. So he's not saying that uh, this advantage, this real advantage of singleness, which we all agree isn't time availability advantage, means that you should therefore you know, didn't deny a good desire for marriage. Paul yeah. specifically cancels that out. And this this is a rare gifting that yeah, you do not see rare. much. Yep. Um, can't think of a first name, but I know that the daughter of uh, Nate Saint, I think was his name, one of the men that uh, was martyred for his faith with the Aka Indians. Uh, his daughter actually lived a life of celibacy being a foreign missionary with tribal peoples who were completely unreached. And she viewed that the same way Paul did this gift of singleness. So if you're going to claim the gift of celibacy, um, you need to understand that it cannot be for any purpose other than what I would call pioneer missions, where you're legitimately risking your life to take the gospel to unreached people groups. Most of the people nowadays that talk about the gift of singleness or what we're going to call the gift of celibacy, they're actually doing it so that they can do more leisurely activity, so that they can play more video games, so they can go to more sporting events, so they can spend their time going to music festivals and hiking through the mountains. The gift of celibacy has nothing to do with leisurely activities. And by the way, all of those things are leisurely activities. They are not missionary movements. You kayaking with your friends on the weekends, that is not what the gift of celibacy is for. The gift of celibacy is that you're going to leave all of the kind of creature comforts of Western civilization, and you're going to go pioneer effort in another country where people have not been reached, and you're going to risk your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what the gift of celibacy exists for. 
And Paul is not demeaning uh, marriage. He just wouldn't do that. A lot of the nuance in what Paul talks about in many places in Scripture, but with people who proof text the Bible over and over again, is lost as we impose our presuppositions on it. And so a lot of people, um, this happened so much when we were dealing with the issue in college where people were terrified that they were going to graduate without their MRS degree, all right? is that they would read a text like this and they would lay on top of it their presuppositions about themselves as a single person. You cannot do that. Paul is dealing with the specific issue of that time of an ascetic desire to either marry for the wrong reasons or not marry for the wrong reasons. And you have to limit the application to that. So that's the first category of singleness, like genuine people who have the gift of celibacy. And then Paul has specific instructions on what you are to Mm -hmm. do with that gift. Almost every single in our context does not fit into that category. They They genuinely do have a desire for marriage. But for whatever reason, they still find Even themselves. If you single. do have that gift, I'd love to talk to you because there's a lot of risky places in the world that I'll send you to. Good, <laughs> got stuff for you to do. Yeah, we we know the people to send you to that could get you in those countries. But if you're assuming uh, almost every single who's watching this is in the other category, they're single, mm-hmm. but they do desire marriage. Well, then you have to ask, so how does this teaching apply to them? Like, what are the kind of things um, that they would need to know to develop a healthy, then, theology of singleness? And I think the most important thing that I would want to say, then, is first, that category of singleness, being single but desiring marriage and not having it, does need to be understood in some part as a form of suffering. Yeah. It is a pain in their life. Um, that they desire a good, and that's the key part, a good and healthy thing from God that Scripture talks about all the time, how that desire to not have it uh, is a point of pain. We get in trouble, and this is what I do see throughout evangelicalism, uh, when we act like something is wrong with someone if they are in pain from being single. <laughs> like we therapeutically just want to cure the pain. Right. We just want to say, oh, you shouldn't feel bad about that. It's okay. God has a plan for your life, which is true, of course. But that doesn't mean that there is not a legitimate source of pain there. A lot of people have a desire for therapy above change. And so a lot of people get very uncomfortable. And I think pretty much everybody finds the place. It's It feels really good to hear a message about someone else. It feels mm-hmm. really good for other people to get convicted. And, I, you know, it's, it's so funny because, you know, my main ministry is preaching and I'll preach sermons and I will hear months, even years of, man, that was fantastic. That was amazing. Until I hit a topic that that particular person struggles with. And then I notice that my relationship with that person changes because it wasn't about other people anymore. Now it's an issue that you are dealing with personally. And we have to fight this urge to always seek therapy, to feel better about our lot in life, to feel better about our current situation above all else. What we need to seek is to have a biblical understanding of every aspect of life, even that which I am feeling, even if it's a negative feeling. And so there are many places in life where you need to simply accept that there's going to be suffering in a host of ways throughout the rest of your life. And the answer isn't always, well, I just need to feel better about Mm -hmm. it so that I don't feel like I'm suffering. The answer is always, no, what do I need to learn from this suffering? What do I need to learn 
through the discontentment that I feel? What do I need to learn about myself through the pain that God is necessarily allowing and even bringing into my life at this point in time? And of course, this is not to say that that suffering should be just dwelt in and become an identity. And that's true for any kind of suffering. You know, any any teaching on suffering is going to say, acknowledge it, seek God in it, but do not dwell and turn it into your identity. Yeah, and, and singleness. We get ourselves in trouble when we act like something is wrong with someone simply because they're suffering. Yeah. And it's like true. being single doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong with you. It might. I'm not going to lie. I can't, I can't, I can't. It's true of the, anything. Yeah, it's true. It's true of anything in life. When you have a specific thing in your life that's bringing you suffering, there are some people who have brought that onto themselves, but that it's not everyone, nor does it mean that you need to feel marginalized yeah. in any way. You are in the situation that you are in, and that specific situation is the one that God has you in. And the answer for you is to find what God can sanctify in your life through that. And so if you've got the desire to be married, the answer to your suffering is not to pretend you don't have that desire, because the fact of the matter is that will then bring an ungodly form of suffering into your life through a religious denial that doesn't need to be there. The pain should be acknowledged. The pain should be not celebrated, but the pain should be accepted and looked at through the lens of how can I grow through this? Then I think the next step for that category of singleness then is actually to move towards pursuing marriage. And Mm -hmm. I think one way the church does has misstepped the last several decades is their next step is applying Paul's teaching on how to use your singleness. And we're going to get there because whatever category of singleness you find yourself in, you do need to apply Paul's teaching. Yeah. But first you need to pursue marriage. Yeah. And in the first step in pursuing marriage then is to be honest about the situation that you're in, not be discontented in a sinful way. Yes. There's a good discontentment and there's a bad discontentment. A good discontentment in pursuing marriage is saying, how can I organize my life so that I can take steps to being in a relationship with someone. So it's honestly looking at yourself and saying, is there anything that I'm committing to, anything personality-wise, anything emotional-wise, anything physical-wise, anything about the way that I'm conducting myself as a human being that needs to change in order for me to be more marriageable than I am right now. But there's an ungodly discontentment Mm -hmm. that you need to avoid. That form of discontentment can lead to things like um, depression that isn't necessarily clinical. It can lead to a melancholy. It can lead to a stagnant way of living. It can also lead to desperation. It can lead to even you blaming others, being resentful towards others. It can create a life where you can't be happy for other people. So if you are single and one of your friends is single, that friend gets into a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, things start going well, and you look at that and you're overwhelmed with covetousness. You're overwhelmed with jealousy in that situation. You can, because of ungodly discontentment, allow it to ruin your life that you can't celebrate when something good is going on in someone else's life. The focus 
needs to be finding godly contentment in the sense of finding your identity in Christ, understanding that marriage is not going to make you spiritually superior. Marriage is not going to make you more worthy of God's love or more worthy of anyone's love, but also holding in tension Mm -hmm. the fact that you can't become stagnant and have no goals. And I think that's the issue that drives someone to to thinking that they have this gift gift of singleness when they really don't have it is they lose sight of the good virtue of having goals in your life. You need to learn to set goals that improve who you are for the future, regardless of whether you get married. I think the church has struggled to teach healthy ambition. Mm -hmm. And this has been true across the board. And we we talk about that a lot in in men's issues. Oh, absolutely. uh, For married men. Uh, for men of any age, because that's who we primarily address in those kind of teachings. And, and the church has just not done a good job of saying ambition can be godly. Of course, it can be misused, mm-hmm. but it can be godly if it comes from good desires and is directed to good ends. Well, that is very much true in singleness. Singles need to learn how to have a a healthy ambition for marriage that does not become ungodly in all the things that you just talked about and end up in a poor marriage, because that that is a possibility. Yeah. But the bigger ditch that I see the church doing right now is encouraging a lack of ambition, yeah. telling singles to sit around, it'll happen. And that's not good teaching. It's what's well, a misunderstanding. And I think it's a it's an antinomianism that has crept into the church and reform people struggle with this a lot, is that you think grace is not the enemy of effort. Right. Um, when you put forward effort in order to earn God's acceptance, that's bad religion. But when you put forward effort towards growing in godliness and growing in virtue in light of the grace that God has given you, that's what sanctification is. And we need to recover the beauty of ambition. Ambition is a good thing. And we teach a lot of people inside and outside of the church, but it's it's really bad inside of the church because it's so unbiblical that ambition is a bad thing, that trying to put forward effort to better yourself is in some way the enemy of resting in the grace of God. And so we will create forms of piety. Um, And the Reform Camp, and you see this in the Gospel Coalition a lot, where last year, the year before, they all run together now, um, (laughs) where they tried to talk about, you know, the idolatry of family that's plaguing the church. And so, well, what's the answer? Is the answer to stagnate in singleness forever and not enter into a family, not focus on uh, becoming (laughs) a better person for the sake of the gospel? No, you always need to have an ambition of becoming more godly in your life, submitting more of yourself to God's law in your life, and looking at every aspect of yourself. This isn't something that just takes place in individuality. This is something that takes place in marriage. I always have to be asking myself, how can I be a better husband to my wife? How can I be a better father to my children? How can I be a better pastor uh, to village? How can I be a better person for everyone that I'm in relationship with, whether it's friendship, whether it's fellowship in my community group. Ambition towards bettering yourself is a godly virtue. We all need to pursue ambitions towards godly desires. If you have a godly desire that is from the Lord and you have scriptural teaching to back that up, 
to have ambition to pursue it. And so that that's a good thing. The last uh, thing that I would want to, to teach singles who desire marriage but still find themselves single is you do need to apply the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. But Paul mm-hmm. is saying something about... And this is where the church, the church has done some of this. They just have not put it in its proper context right, right, underneath the ambition. Right. Uh, but you do need to understand that that God has 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 you in this place in this time with extra time and availability. And as long as you are single, the scriptural teaching would be that you ought to use that to build the church and advance the kingdom. Take it, take advantage of it. Um, you know, there were things. I got married when I was twenty five. And I have uh, been doing ministry uh, in a a vocational basis from my early 20s on. So I was doing ministry before I was married. And there were, I have to be honest, some advantages to being single. I could take any mission trip at any time that I wanted (laughs) to take. I considered nothing. I considered no one else. I went and did it. I could do ministry 24 hours a day. And man, I did. I took trips. I did uh, events. I would would be doing small group ministry in the middle of the night with people. I mean, I had no limitation. Take advantage of your singleness when you can, because when you transition into family, it is a different level of ministry for everyone. It's not just this commitment that limits what you can do and when you can do it. It is a new form of ministering to people. Now I live with an entire group of right. people that I minister to. <laughs> I minister to my wife. I minister to my children. And that limits, that's a commitment of me saying no to other things that when I was single, I didn't yeah. need to say no to. Now, here's the tension in that that I do think we need to address because I, you know, I know a bunch of singles. I talk to them. Um, I know, you know, single guys better than single women, but I know singles. I'm glad to hear that. that that's that's how it should work. Um, I know there is a tension of feeling like, well, is all that I'm here for is to serve the church. And I just want to I want to speak to that in two ways. One, clearly, no. Clearly, all people are you know, created in the image of God, full members of the church are here for many more things than to just serve the church. On the other side, we are all in some sense here to serve the church. And the clear teaching of Paul is that singles have more time for that. So I, I think to to fully embrace a good theology of singleness, like you've got to embrace that teaching. You've got to embrace it. Yes, part of being single is having more time and availability oh, for yeah. service. Well, and I, w- I would look back at my um, time uh, really between the ages of eighteen and twenty five um, when I when I was single serving serving the church. I look back and wish I would have served the church more. Yeah. Every meaningful relationship in my 40s now, every meaningful yeah. relationship that has endured happened inside of the context of church ministry. Yeah. And everything that I look back on and I think that was a meaningful time in my life, I was engaged in church ministry. I was taking mission trips. I was do, I was doing youth ministry. I was doing things that I look back at now and say, that mattered eternally speaking. And so if I could just warn single people against anything, it would be wasting your time. Yeah. Um, you need to view your life and you need to take captive as much time as possible where church ministry is concerned. Here's the other thing I would add to that. And anyone who who knows us would say that this is true. Uh 
when we do man talks, we're talking to married and single men, but you know, 80, 90% of the, the men there are married. We're calling them to serve the church more. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're, we're calling them to a life of service. So I even think some of the tension is manufactured. Like there's a reality that singles have more time, mm-hmm. but the reality in our culture is all of us need to be challenged to, oh, to serve. All right. Absolutely. So to kind of put a, a last thought on this, but we might, might have a little bit to say here. Um, <laughs> I do want to, to tell singles that valuing marriage is not denigrating singleness. No. Um, one issue that comes up a lot, and I think this is why we get this question, is that in teaching the value of marriage, the importance of family, the importance of the next generation, um, singles can feel like the church is ignoring them in their place. And that really could not be further from the truth right. uh, for multiple reasons. First, um, almost every single to the point where I shouldn't even say almost. <laughs> in our context, it's pretty much every single. They do desire marriage. And so the best thing the church can do to help them in that desire is to uphold the value and importance of marriage. Because what we're doing then is we're creating an environment where marriages are more likely to happen. Yeah, and it's it's good because without that People in marriage, marriages rather, make terrible decisions all the time, and we have to deal with the outcomes of those terrible decisions. And those are the noticeable ones. The issue that if you are single and you're in your 20s, your 30s, if you're 40 or beyond, singleness lacks a certain level of accountability that marriage gives you. And so single people need to be in environments that are focused on building marriages, casting vision for marriage and family, because being single can put you into environments where you can make bad decisions that prevent you from going after what you really want. If, if you say, I desire these things, then you need to be in an environment that focuses on aiding people to have sanctified marriages, aiding people to have healthy families and marriages so that you will continually catch a vision for what you already want. Because there is a temptation to make bad decisions that will prevent you from getting there. For men, singleness brings a huge amount of temptation where pornography is concerned. And when you invest your life in that type of immorality, it is going to prolong your singleness because you will, number one, be trying to find physical pleasure where you're not supposed to find it. Your brain will be rewired so that you cannot have intimacy um, with a woman at any level in many ways. And it will create a false perception as to what marriage actually is. So when you enter marriage, you enter into it with all that baggage that pornography has given you. And women, we know statistically, have the exact same temptation in their lives. And so if we did not focus on marriage at the level that we do, it would not aid people with sing- in, in a single status to understand what they need to do in order to prepare for marriage. There is a host of ungodly temptations yeah. that single people deal with that is helped by focusing on what good marriage is so that they will try to avoid those pitfalls. Uh, you don't have to, nowadays in the year 2022, 
Um, temptation does not just happen when you are alone with another person of the opposite sex. Now, temptation happens when you look at a screen. And so when we form an environment to help healthy marriages happen, that necessarily helps single people form a godly vision for what you want, for what you desire. And it aids you in understanding the type of person you need to find to form that type of life. Yep. If you are single and you desire marriage, you should want the church to talk about these topics Absolutely. all the time. It's going to help you. Second thing that I would say is uh, the next generation, and we talk a lot about kids and a lot about threats to kids and how to disciple kids. All of that really does should matter to singles because uh, as far as the church family goes and the future of the church, even if you're single, even if you find yourself and you end up in a place of lifelong singleness, the next generation ought to and should still matter to you a Absolutely. lot just as a Christian disciple. And so we want to affirm that and say, hey, you know, even if you're single, you have um, value in helping disciple and shape the next generation. That That's hugely important. And we want you mm -hmm. to care about that too. It's it's an important way singles are a part of the life of the church. Yep. Uh, we have single people that are discipling children, discipling teenagers, and man, we value them and pray pray for them. Now, let's talk about just for a minute some terrible advice <laughs> that we have heard um, people give to singles. And most of the bad advice that I've heard over the years comes from people who are overly pietistic, yeah. uh, and it's based on really helping people feel comfortable about comfortable about a lack of ambition. Yeah. So real quick things here. One piece of bad advice that I hear is don't settle. Yeah. It, <laughs> and it, it, we need to, we need yeah, to talk let, this out. Hear me out. Hear me hear out. Us out here. Uh, the reason <laughs> we don't say that in meaning just accept whatever <laughs> comes not. your way. Of course you should use godly discernment, <laughs> scripture as your guide, uh, accountability from wise advisors yeah. around you that if, you know, if you're a girl and a completely irresponsible guy comes your way, a real knucklehead who's them. a sinner, uh, investing his life poorly, throwing it all away. Don't settle for that. Of course not. But the advice don't settle. I have seen it breed a culture of looking for the one. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to find the one. Here's the key. The one doesn't exist. Um, because what that leads to, I actually, when I was... Uh, working, doing college ministry, um, there was a missionary in India who got into adultery uh, with a few women, and his excuse was that his wife wasn't the one. And so he had to leave his wife in order to find God's will for his life. That's why that is such unbiblical theology. Um, if if you are thinking, I don't want to settle, here's the deal. No one's going to meet your standards. No one's going to live up. You're looking for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ isn't going to marry you. Whoever you marry is going to be imperfect in some way. They're not going to meet every standard under the sun. They're not going to be the fantasy. And the fact is, your fantasies are probably unbiblical. They're probably yeah. wrong. Look for someone who is pursuing Jesus and serving the church. Be very cautious about unrealistic expectations. Next piece of advice I hear that is just detrimental is, and we, we already addressed this somewhat in the ambition thing, but don't be ambitious. You've got plenty of time. 
Um, just wait and and God will bring the right person to you. What's so funny about that advice is that when you're single, you got plenty of time. When you're married, that's when we're allowed to look at people and be like, the days are evil. Life is a vapor. All right. No, that advice goes to everyone. It doesn't matter if you're married or if you're single. Life is a vapor. Decades go by just like that. Uh, It feels like just yesterday, my wife and I didn't have any children. Now we've got a teenager. All right. And let me tell you, from no children to teenage children has felt like the blink of an eye to us. Um, You do not have all the time in the world. You need to get your life in order as soon as you possibly can. You need to get to growing up as soon as you can. If you're an adult and you are single, the best advice I could give you is grow up. Yeah. If you continually live your life acting single, you're going to stay single. This is really, this is the advice that I just want to give, especially people in their young 20s acting like they've got all the time in the world. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, a couple decades later, people understand the reality of what we're saying right now. But you can't, it is true that you can't make something happen, but you can be ambitious enough to Make something happen. <laughs> you know, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I don't know if everybody else understands what we mean when we say things like that, but it's true. It's true. You're, you know, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a five point right. Calvinist. I'm a sovereignist. I believe that nothing happens in the world that God does not have absolute control over. But that doesn't mean my choices don't matter. That doesn't mean my volition doesn't matter. That doesn't mean I don't put forward effort. You know me. A lot of guys know me really well, and they know that I spend my whole day trying to make things happen. And I believe I'm making them happen because I am making them happen. I make God's will happen all the time (laughs) in my life. And everyone else should have that attitude. Nothing good is going to happen apart from your activity in life. If you want to follow Jesus, guess what? You got to actually follow Jesus. It takes effort. You got to work at it. You got to make the sacrifices. You got to put the time in. If you want to get married, you need to put the time in. It is a hellacious lie that leads to a lot of suffering to tell someone, no, 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 keep being selfish with the way that you view your life. You've got plenty of time later to be giving and sacrificial for the life of another person. That's going to lead to nothing but suffering. It's not going to lead to anything good in your life. Last thing, very much related to everything we've said, but bad advice that I've heard is just be godly. Everything else will work out. Of course, you need <laughs> of course to be godly and uh, pursue holiness and pursue commitment to the church, all those things. But there is more to life than that. Well, it's it's a contradiction. It is a contradiction. Yes. Just be godly. It's, it is. And it will, work, it will all work out that just sitting around waiting for it all to it's work out is not godly. No. The if you just think about this, and I'm you know I want to be real pious, pious right here yeah. and gospel everybody on okay. this. God didn't just let it all work out. Jesus really became a human being. Jesus volitionally had to be perfect yeah. for thirty plus years. Jesus did godly things. Jesus pursued godliness in his life. He proactively was righteous. And then he literally had to die on the cross and he physically had to raise from the dead. 
he didn't just sit around and wait for it to happen. So neither can you. So with the young guy, Mm -hmm. I'm very much going to Jordan Peterson them here. I'm going to say, you got to clean up your room. Like you got to, and I am not going to find anything Mm non-gospelly about telling a young guy, you got to get your life together. Well, it is just factually true. And it's God's truth that changing the world does begin. And Jordan, this is literally what Jordan Peterson (laughs) said. Changing the world begins by making your bed. Get your life together so that a woman can depend on you as her husband. And women, I've never been a woman, uh, so I I can't speak to all things where just what what it feels like. But I can say, if you want a man to look your way, get your life together. Make your bed too, so that you can be a godly man and a godly woman who is pursuing marriage with his or her life. It's the pursuit of a godly desire. Here's here's something that I would really want to tell singles. And, you know, we had just did three episodes on uh, positive world to negative world and those transitions in cultures. Anyone who's paying attention to culture recognizes that the environment for pursuing marriage has become much more difficult oh, 100%. the last decade. And I, I acknowledge so and I'm see so that. I'm so glad I got married before social media. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that that is not right. Like the culture should be better. Like it is a loss that we are losing the Christian influence on culture that does help create a better environment for those who desire marriage to pursue it. So I want to say, I see that. I acknowledge that we do uh, <laughs> feel that pain. Like we really, cause we understand we, we are tuned into culture and we understand, man, I, I'm not looking forward to that for my own kids. I, I wish that mm-hmm. wasn't the case. But the answer to that is only to have good strategies, to pursue godly wisdom, to serve the church, to to be faithful, and to try to have ambition towards what God says is a good desire. Let's close with that thought, with just this idea that ambition is good, pursuing goodness with your life is healthy. And if God has put a desire in you for marriage, you should order your life according to that desire while also pursuing Christ-likeness where you are in your life right now. Strategy for marriage is a good thing. So put yourself where people are. Put yourself out there, build good relationships, strategize towards what you want where godly marriage is concerned, and then through your effort, pray that God would bless your activity in your life. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. God wants good things for you. Thanks for joining us for the Converge podcast once again. Please do us a favor. Wherever you listen to this podcast, please leave us a positive review. If you can give us five stars, I pray that you would. If you could write a few sentences about how wonderful Steve and Nate are and how wise and sage we are where the things of God are concerned, we would really appreciate that. But until next time, thanks for joining us.